None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast and Kratom Science Journal Club, nor on any of the pages of KratomScience.com, should be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Dr. Fabian Peter Steinmetz, a toxicologist from Germany. Dr. Steinmetz recently gave testimony to the World Health Organization's 44th Expert Committee on Drug Dependence, outlining the case for why Kratom should be kept legal. As a member of European Coalition for Just and Effective Drug Policies, he is an outspoken advocate against the war on drugs and in favor of harm reduction and drug policy reform. Thank you so much for doing this, and thank you for your testimony to WHO. That was you were a rock star in the kratom community for a few <laughs> days there. <laughs> a lot of people were sharing that um, video, and I of course retweeted it. But I just wanted to talk briefly about your background. So your field of science is toxicology, is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, people get into toxicology from um, different type of uh, backgrounds. You know, there are some people uh, who are trained medical doctors. There are a lot of chemists. And uh, I myself, I'm uh, coming back from this chemical engineering, pharmaceutical engineering background. So um, because, you know, toxicology is very, very wide field. But on the other hand, also very niche. You were representing the European Coalition for Just and Effective Drug Policies uh, when you spoke uh, to the WHO. Um, can you tell us about that a little bit? Uh, NCOT. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they are one of those, uh, let's say, uh, legalized or drug policy reform entities in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, while, you know, traditionally there are a lot of uh, national groups, this is one on the European level. And of course, because, you know, the UN does meet in Vienna. Uh, very often so uh, particularly when they want to talk about drugs and uh, so this is also why usually NCOT tries to you know give their opinion in there so I'm actually only a member since uh, uh, I think less than a year and so this was actually the first time I kind of uh, spoke for them Um, I think officially I'm only an ordinary member and uh, but I'm yeah, I kind of grown into the, uh, they call it the inner circle. And yeah, basically for ANCOT, they just, you know, they said, oh yeah, the, uh, the, there's the upcoming ECDD, the 44th. And uh, should we do something, particularly with regard to Kratom? Because uh, one of the, one motto of ANCOT is the, the so-called freedom to farm. So this basic attitude of you should be able to grow your own medicine, particularly referring to, to hemp, poppy and coca as banned plants. And of course, we want to avoid that another plant gets banned, particularly if it's even even less dangerous than uh, the other ones. And even there, you could argue that the plant materials, you know, hemp, I mean, how dangerous is hemp? You know, it's an argument on its own. But yeah, this is basically how, how I got there. Um, I, I used the chance to tell WHO that I, I uh, think the drug policy is ridiculous. And, uh, by, and if they would ban Kratom, it would even become more ridiculous. You're in Germany now. Yeah. So I, um, I work for an um, international science consultancy and uh, our headquarters in London. I work for the uh, close to London and I work for the office in um, Amsterdam, but I'm usually dwelling in the south of Germany, south from Frankfurt. I'm from Germany originally and I'm also based now in Germany. 
I was just going to ask, like, what the uh, laws are like there, because, I, I mean, I know, like, cannabis is becoming more and more legal in the states, and I, the right to grow, I think, is a, is a bigger issue, because there's a lot of actual cannabis companies now that are gaining more lobbying power, and they're lobbying against home grow laws in the states. Is that similar to what you're seeing in Germany or some countries in Europe? I mean, so far in whole Europe, there's no single legalized country. I mean, if you compare the U.S. with the Europe, I mean, you know that countries are a little bit more independent than, yeah. than states in the U.S. But mm. on the other mm. hand, I mean, due to this whole concept of the European community, it's, I would say, kind of com still comparable. You know, we have our little countries and uh, those bigger European umbrella and you got uh, 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 yeah, the USA and the individual states. Keep in mind, so far in the whole Europe, not a single country has a fully legalized cannabis market. Mm. We have the, uh, the Netherlands with uh, a tolerance for their coffee shops uh, for, I don't know, since the, since the 70s or something. Um, but there is no legal market. So even the, the cannabis you buy in Amsterdam, although they tolerate the shops and the shops pay taxes and stuff, the, the cannabis itself uh, comes from the illegal market. So the growers for the cannabis shops, they go into jail if they... Um, get busted and then of course we have some other uh, let's say tolerance models like with uh, the, the cannabis social clubs in certain countries particularly in catalonia so the northern parts of of spain, spain. Yeah. and then now i think there's now this uh malta will now have something like a decriminalization with cannabis social clubs um where i was also lucky to to speak to uh, uh within the within the hearing of their parliament maybe they celebrate me also as a hero not many people do so <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, there were a lot of activists and scientists involved there. So I, I just uh, made one one little talk there uh, about um, driving limits and so on. And then uh, one of their uh, parliamentarians was talking rubbish, and I kind of interrupted her and, and just asked to stop talking rubbish. And uh, this, of course, the activists involved really liked. So um, <laughs> good, good. Um, and, and yeah, related to that, I, I was going to ask about the Netherlands because. Like you just said, it's not completely legal there. And there was an article from uh, Der Spiegel that you posted uh, on Twitter the other day. And they said, well, the cocaine gangs in the Netherlands are carrying uh, Kalishnikovs. And this is, and the quote was, this, this is the story of a country that willingly surrendered to drugs. So, and you said absolute bullshit and i noticed <laughs> bullshit translates the same in uh, both english and german uh <laughs> so um what basis do they claim that uh legal drugs are causing these types of crimes it seems that's ridiculous. the point yeah, those drugs are not legal that's just the point i mean yeah. it's still criminals uh, in, involved and of course if one you know if one huge grower you know with uh, thousands of plants if this person gets into an argument with with another person, you know, people get arguments all the time. Usually people clarify this uh, on court if they find any no other solution. But if you can't go to court because it's illegal, um, then you have to use Kalashnikovs. And I'm usually mocking them and saying something. If we would probably legalize cannabis and also other drugs, the likelihood of people going with Kalashnikovs, like in this example, to, to another person and trying to kill them or uh, torture them or kidnap their kids or whatever, is as likely as, tell me to, what, what's a famous beer brands in, in the US? So Budweiser and, yeah. um, tell me another one. But what, Miller Lite? <laughs> 
Miller Lite, yeah. So, so, so basically Miller Lite, and it's as likely as uh, Budweiser and uh, um, Miller Lite are kind of, uh, you know, torturing uh, each other's kids. You know, it's that likely. So that's just the point. There is no regulated market, and therefore people have to apply uh, this whole, you know, gangsterism, and uh, and the people don't get it. And then our people in Germany, because what was it, a few weeks ago was federal election, and now there will be most likely a so-called um, traffic light coalition, and there are basically all parties are at least for decriminalizing um, the, the the market, and uh, the majority is even for legalizing the market. I mean the cannabis market. So mm-hmm. and now all the conservatives, puritanic freaks, they kind of talk a lot of <laughs> shit about uh, what will go wrong and how evil drugs are and how evil. You know, they, they kind of pretend that cannabis is intrinsically something not working in a market. And this is, you know, uh, complete bullshit. So I try to explain that that the reason why there are, you know, weapons and violence is because it's not regulated. And, um, and, and you know, and if you explain this a couple of times and you still see that the same journalist you were talking to a couple of weeks ago, then, yeah, you might get a little bit frustrated. And, uh, yeah, then you have to pardon your French. Yeah. <laughs> so, in in your opinion, um, how do bans of the substance actually harm people? It really seems like you know people are blaming the drug for the associated problems uh, when it's really a lot of other things besides. I mean, you're a toxicologist, and it's really a lot of other things besides how toxic the actual substances are. So, how do bans? Uh, and making things illegal actually harm communities. Maybe maybe a, f- a few things about myself. Um, okay, it's it's um, just just to understand my position a bit. Um, so I, as a, you know, uh, in my salad days, I I was kind of pissed off that you know uh, uh, certain drugs which are uh, much more safe than other drugs. I mean, I, I come from a wine area, um, and particularly when there are certain festivities people are really really drunk and you know also the associated uh violence and damage and so on uh-huh. i was pissed off that as a little pothead in high school i was uh you know i, I had to be afraid to, to get busted all the time and I, I didn't like this and then you know I, I become interested in it and then of course a lot into the pharmacology and toxicology and this of course influenced what i studied later on but then i actually started um, to see those uh, other scientists um, in, in Germany or worldwide who are interested in the field. And they very often come from a social science background, sometimes even from a law background. And they actually learn much more how harmful this is on, on, on so many levels. I mean, the first mm-hmm. thing is uh, what I didn't know, which what you didn't lo- what you don't learn in a, in a science, or at least not in a, in a natural science or biology, chemistry, pharmacology course, is that use prevalence does not change very much if you ban a product like cannabis. We know that the that the use prevalence does not really change. And uh, there are a lot of studies about it. I mean, there are those little shifts uh, that, you know, there's some some 50-plus um, uh, people um, now smoking a little bit more pot. But um, there's particularly with the vulnerable people, there's not changing very much. And we have this data. Um, we had this data for the Netherlands. Now we have the data from uh, Uruguay, Canada, and a lot of U.S. states. So I'm actually for the debate completely useless because harm is not an option if the use stays the same. Yeah. Then mm-hmm. you actually have to think, okay, what does the the banning make? What's the difference in uh, when you're banning it? And then we come into first of all harms based on law enforcement. I mean, there are a lot of 
young people. You know, if I would have been busted with, you know, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, I'm not sure if I would have pursued the same career, you know. And there are, I, I mean, I, I, I know people, people from that time who, you know, if you are hindered in doing your, your high school degree, your driving license, um, if you are not allowed to do a certain job or another uh, accepted in, in, in certain studies due to your police record or whatever, this is very harmful. Um, and, and this can determine your, your further life very much. Social harm just by the policing, uh, I think, is completely underestimated in the debate. And this is now only one aspect. Then the drugs itself. We currently have a big issue in Germany with, uh, uh, they basically, I'm not sure if you ever heard the, the term CBD weed. It's basically those extremely low THC strains. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have some. So they are basically gray areas. So they are not completely legal, but they're kind of sold everywhere. And particularly, you know, since the internet is around. So um, so people kind of, uh, so there is actually a market for this one. And uh, so these products sometimes are sprayed on with synthetic cannabinoids. Mm. And I'm not talking about synthetic THC or uh, the, the Delta-8 you got in, in the US. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about JWH-18 and PINACA, blah, blah, blah. So those synthetic substances with high potency and also which are a full agonist, while, for example, uh, THC is only a partial agonist. Mm-hmm. So these are actually cannabinoids which can kill you. And they are sprayed on those products and they are sold to people. Listen to the whole sentence, otherwise they um, uh, might kill me afterwards. But, you know, we have in, in Germany people who have died from cannabis. But because it's adulterated or laced with those synthetic cannabinoids, you know, we have a lot of uh, psychotic episodes due to those substances. Um, It also is um, the potential, you know, in quotation marks, addiction. Um, So cannabis use disorder, however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. This this, uh, occurs much more often if you have those synthetic cannabinoids. So this unregulated market is um, creating harms like this. Another harm would be, um, I think five years ago, there was a region where they have put lead powder or lead salt powders and cannabis to make it more heavy of course you know what uh, um, that lead is um, uh, uh, a neurotoxin Mm -hmm. so there were a lot of people um, who have been hospitalized due to that so this lack of a regulated market is harming people then tax money is missing Um, it's um, uh, we have one um, economist in in another group i am it's a a drug science group called schildauer kreis and they calculated that it's uh, 3 billion euros per year we are missing out uh, by, f- first of all, putting money into the law enforcement, but then also leaving the money to the criminals. So the money which could be, you know, coming in via taxes. So this is also money which is missing for um, education on the topic and uh, or, or, you know, therapies, uh, safer use education, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, I mean, with other drugs, it's, it's, it's much more severe, but also with cannabis. People are growing it uh, in, in the attics, in the, in the cellar, um, in, 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 in tents, and their waste, they, f- they just throw away they, because they don't want to put it into, into their bin because then the police could identify um, where is this from. So they usually put, it, uh, they, they put the stuff somewhere on the countryside or they throw it in the river. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. very recently in the, in the big river in, in, in Berlin and at the Spree, um, they found a lot of bags with trims. Um, I don't know if they did BHO before, but um, um, but uh, uh, yeah, at least you know a, a lot of waste. And of course, if you now think about cocaine production, um, this is of course much more severe. Uh, if there would be regulated market, you could apply environmental standards 
if there's an unregulated market, people will hide and throw it away where people can't see them. And this is usually somewhere in nature. Um, so, um, and I mean, there are so many aspects. And this is also my, my catchphrase. The ban is not, uh, uh, is not lowering the use prevalence, but it's potentiating all harms there are. And in German, it sounds more catchy. Promise. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the point is uh, very clear. In, in terms of uh, toxicology, there's the concept that the dose makes the poison. Um, there are some people who are developing, you know, some dependence problems with Kratom. You know, there, there's been reports of some uh, toxic uh, uh, reactions. I think you, you even said uh, long-term use of extracts can uh, lead to some kind of uh, toxic reactions in the liver. Is the issue with more about the misuse by the individual than the drug itself? I mean, it's kind of a leading question, but like in Southeast Asia where Kratom grows, we don't, they don't report any of those issues. I had um, Dr. Darshan Singh uh, from Malaysia here, and he said these things that are happening in the United States or elsewhere just don't happen here in Malaysia with traditional use. And you also see that kind of with the coca leaves versus cocaine. What would you have to say about that, like, as a toxicologist? Is it, therefore, you know, incorrect to blame the substance, so to speak? And is it more about uh, responsible use and, and making sure your doses aren't too high? Extracts are always, you know, the, the, the principle is always, um, depending, you know, on, on a lot of factors like um, um, temperature, type of solvent, and, and or the process in general, you're always up potentiating or you're taking certain compounds out and other compounds you leave behind D depending on how you do the extract you, you might enrich also some compounds which are more of concern um, i think i also just to make make clear that um, um we have the same issue with tea i mean mm -hmm. I, I drank today already tea i mean camellia sinensis or an hour so the, the typical uh, black tea uh, the british like to drink so but if you, for example, do an um, ethanol extract of them and, uh, and want to use it due to the high um, um, antioxidant levels, there was actually um, um, very recent studies where they found out that they had some um, elevated liver values and even some associated with um, uh, liver damage. Mm -hmm. So this is nothing atypical. We, we, we may find this with a lot of different plants uh, that as soon as you put in a high quantities, um, as you just said, you know, paracelsus, um, uh, the dose makes the poison. So it's easier to get doses where you don't know if they're safe if you're using extracts. If you use natural material, it's less likely um, um, to, to overdose. Although, you know, overdose is uh, uh, maybe uh, a misleading term in this context. Do, do you know if any extracts are used traditionally? Because I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm not aware. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, as far as um, we could find, and I, I even talked to one of the producers of uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, and they've studied this a lot. Um, it's only, in those countries, it's only chewing and brewing fresh leaves as a tea, and they might use some dry leaves, but as far as, like, the extracts, I think that's uh, relatively new. Yeah, so that's the, that's the point. I mean, you're, you're you may enrich certain, I mean, you're definitely enriching your alkaloids. I mean, this is the main purpose, but you might also enrich some other compounds 
people um, have um, based on their genetics might have um, different 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 type of metabolism so certain people have slightly different enzymes than other or different mm-hmm. enzyme concentrations and so then other metabolites occur and it's actually very often that a metabolite is the compound which is uh, toxic or for in a kratom the compound which for example is uh, mainly um, responsible for the uh, opioid type of effects so and you, you just have to imagine, I mean, there is not just uh, mitrogenine and then this hydroxymitrogenine, there are also uh, 50 other metabolites. Mm. And then every metabolite also becomes another 50 metabolites. Of course, at some point, it's get really diluted down. So at a certain point, uh, you know, there's only one molecule turning into another one. But uh, it's still very complex to predict. And this is why I, in, in toxicology, for example, work very often with um, a thing called a history of safe use. Because particularly if you work with consumer goods, and not um, with with a uh, pharmaceutical drug. So for pharmaceutical drugs, you you very much know about what a single molecule is doing. So you exactly know what um, when you swallow a paracetamol, how much is absorbed and what of kind, what time, how much is bound to your blood to your plasma protein, um, how much is going into what kind of type of tissues, what are the metabolites which are produced. Under which circumstances um, there are toxic metabolites, um, the, the napqui in paracetamol, for example, or if you if you use very high levels of paracetamol, then uh, um, one of your enzymes is depleting, and then the other the enzymes are taking over in a higher, uh, re- relatively higher amount, and then there's a this uh, substance uh, it's very often tra- um, abbreviated as napqui. Um, and this is, for example, um, a liver toxic compound, which is standard build. But if you only use it at low level, paracetamol is not uh, a big problem. But in high le- levels, you know, it's damaging your liver. And, you know, the, those kind of things in pharmaceuticals, they are studied very well. And you do those pharmacovigilance. But for things where there is a history of safe use, and this could be everything, you know, from, from uh, the um, black tea to chamomile tea to uh, typical foods, substances in, um, you know, f- fermented food products, natural products. They are, by definition, they are uh, mixtures, you know, as nature has built them because it's 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 never um, a mono substance. So something isolated and then, you know, 99% pure. It's always a mixture. And then you actually, you very often, you, you cannot justify it uh, on proper pharmacological, toxicological data apart from um, animal trials. And they are also, let's say, quite limited so you shovel a lot of a, um, a certain quantity of an of a of a plant or a plant extract into an animal and then um after a couple of weeks you you dissect and you you will see um if uh, you know there are any histopathology so if if organs kind of changed if you can see for example um the liver or the kidney looks weird or, or of course if um, the animal gets any any other issues, but these are very expensive tests, and they are, are and they are also banned in certain industries, particularly in cosmetics. They have now been banned in in um, uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So this is why uh, an argument for safety is actually very often history of safe use. That you look, okay, this population is using this food product in this quantity for a very long time, and this we actually use for substantiation of uh, why, at least at this level, you don't expect that there will be adverse reactions. Um, of course, you also look into the chemical composition and, you know, if there's any uh, critical compounds, then you might also want to control them and do some uh, additional studies. But very, very much is actually done with this attitude of, uh, you know, history of safe use. And um, this is also what I think justifies Kratom. 
And what I also said in the in the in the talk to the uh, in, within the ECDD, if you do specific extracts there, if at a certain alkaloid level or at, or if use levels should be very high, then it might be valuable to do a proper clinical study, and of course also do a preclinical study before. Another thing you said in that uh, testimony that you said if you treat kratom use as a deadly contribution in fentanyl overdose, then you must also consider a cup of coffee as a deadly contribution in a uh, methamphetamine overdose. So in your opinion, does kratom contribute to some of those uh, deaths where they also had fentanyl? Like, did it increase the strength of the fentanyl, or would they have died in some of these cases without the kratom? Yeah, I mean, this is a very theoretical kind of thing, and yeah. this is, and, you know, and keep in mind, I mean, also people who work in forensics, they usually work with very crappy data, and also uh, even yeah. the, the samples yeah. are crappy, and sometimes even literally crappy. One scenario would be, for example, you know, if if you assume that for one person a certain plasma level, or, or actually, a, uh, I think a brain liquor level would be even more relevant. Of fentanyl would be deadly for this person in that situation and i mean even this is usually variable um, and even fentanyl i mean it's uh, if applied correctly it's still a safe drug you know and i'm no one uh bad mouthing fentanyl um even i know i know once used the derivative for uh, a surgery so mm-hmm. i survived in theory it could be that you know if you have another uh if you have then you know this hydroxy at this at a high concentration there that it would in, maybe increase your respiratory depression and be you know a cause of death this is very theoretical because i think kratom also has some other properties um, which actually also stimulating slightly mm-hmm. um, the, the, the respiratory path a little bit i think there's some scientific debate not the expert there but you know in theory there could be a contribution like like this on a pharmacodynamic base so basically yeah. where something active is happening and in this case something active which is harmful like you know respiratory depression another scenario which is probably even more likely is that if you take um, high amount of substances which uh, which basically are depleting your liver enzymes um, other substances which are dependent um, on also being metabolized for example that you know substance goes also you know uh, step by step into your your system via gastrointestinal absorption the the dose which is defined for you is based on the assumption that while stuff is getting in particularly now if you think about those uh slow release pills and so on if stuff is getting in or if you, you know uh, plasters uh, um, there are those plasters for fentanyl there i think also i think very common the people who did those studies they also expect that the substance is also you know decaying so it's getting out of your system or getting metabolized to an inactive substance but if this process for example is inhibited by a lot of other substances then uh, this is also a type of uh, drug drug interaction which then of course can have a harmful outcome i'm not sure mm-hmm. if you um, ever read about the uh, ayahuasca and uh, um, mono amino oxidase inhibition yes it's basically something, yes. something like that so what's a good example bananas or old cheese they're not toxic at all but if you have this uh, MRO inhibitors in your body, then something like an old cheese uh, can be toxic. I mean, mm. it's a bit difficult to imagine. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, some smell toxic, but they usually aren't toxic, even even the ones from Switzerland. Well, most of the cheese in America is fake cheese, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but sometimes, no. sometimes fake cheese is even better than real cheese, but that's, you know, <laughs> my, my, my wife might disappear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Oh, one thing that I think you said that was interesting in your testimony that I don't know if I've heard before, but um, you said it's uh, Kratom is a traditional medicine for pain and opioid withdrawal symptoms, and you said perhaps soon Parkinson's disease. So um, what what do we know about uh, Kratom and Parkinson's disease? Yeah, so this was actually based on a, a presentation, I think the, the, the one before mine, where we've seen this in vivo study of this uh, Parkinson model. <clears throat> and I thought this was uh, quite remarkable results. And then uh, later on, I've even seen uh, some some testimonials, even some video testimonials. I don't expect it to become um, uh, a miracle drug. I would probably mm. consider it similarly to cannabis that it will help, you know, a certain percentage of people dramatically and probably a lot of people uh, it might not work. Uh, but I mean, studies need, uh, need to be conducted to find that out. Yeah. The problem yeah. is, of course, Clinical studies are very expensive, and for a substance you cannot patent, it's a bit difficult to get those type of fundings. I mean, there's usually NGOs who take care of this kind of stuff uh, because big pharmaceutical companies, you know, they prefer chemical substance. Um, they can also file a patent on it and, you know, sue, sue other companies who want to sell the same drug, which you cannot do with Graydon because, if, you know, one big com big pharmaceutical company does a study and find out it's uh, it's actually a miracle drug for for uh, Parkinson, then um, you know a lot of other um, companies would uh, jump on the train and would also uh, license uh, Kratom-based Parkinson medication, and but then only one company would have uh, paid millions for the clinical study, and all the other companies are benefiting from it, and this is why they usually um, only deal with uh, the substances they design themselves chemically, which I think is an issue in the system. So I, I hope, hopefully, we will see more uh, on this. Um, I find this really, really interesting. But um, maybe I should emphasize, I'm, I'm not an expert neither on, on Parkinson therapies. I'm not even an expert on Kratom. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's all right. I sent you a su uh, study yesterday, and, and I had this um, scientist on, Dr. Uh, Dr. Prigelic, um, he's from Midwestern University in Chicago, and he did a study about um, he went around and bought samples from head shops in the Chicago area of Kratom, and he found um, some levels of lead and nickel uh, in, in those samples that he was concerned about, and he said if somebody was using, you know, over 10 grams a day over a period of time, that might prove to be toxic. I'm just wondering, and I, and I sent you a study, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but I was just wondering uh, if you had any thoughts about that. So I, I have some thoughts in general about this aspect, and I think this is, comes a bit down to regulation. Mm -hmm. But but first of all, yeah, I, I had a very brief look, uh, and uh, luckily this was uh, open access. So yeah, they, they found some some microorganisms. Um, of course, you should avoid them if possible, and mm -hmm. there are some critical ones. Let's say most uh, microorganisms are still, you know, people can if they if they take the substance orally. Usually, um, uh, the acid in your stomach can handle them. But of course, if you, you know, if you're on, on, on a certain gastrointestinal drugs, then, you know, Kratom then might be a source, particularly uh, of some pathogenic um, microbes. So it's not ideal. There are strategies to avoid them. And this is uh, something we can talk about in a minute. With regard to the heavy metals, there is no safe limit. So it's difficult to say, you know, uh, um, mm. is it okay or not? 
There are also some heavy metals who can, um, have, can have some accumulation in your body and then you get your problems much later in life. There are certain standard limits for heavy metals for in, uh, within certain consumer products. In the samples we have seen, they were over such limits, but they were not dramatically over those limits. Mm -hmm. So that means for the occasional Kratom user, I don't see any particular issue. Uh, but of course, if it's a long-term therapy at high doses, then of course, um, quality control becomes a, a bit more important. Maybe this would be then also something for the vendors. I mean, if the people who are uh, growing and producing the material, if they don't do this analysis, then maybe this could be addressed by uh, the people actually then selling them, for example, in uh, Europe or in the US. Um, because actually, the, particularly those heavy metal tests, they are not very expensive. Mm -hmm. And then they could, um, you know, put a, a cert certificate of analysis and, uh, or also apply a specification and, you know, just promise you that they won't go over 5 ppm of lead or whatever. But, you know, the, the levels they are too high. Uh, at, you know, they showed a range. I think most of them still were negative, but they, but some showed a range and some range would be over over standard limits, definitely, but not dramatically. But again, there are probably some toxicologists who are experts on heavy metal exposure and so on. They might have a slightly different opinion, but I'm I'm not I'm not really shocked that much, and uh, I, it would probably not take me away from using kratom. How, what can we do about this? And this is why where regulation comes in. Yeah, I mean the one thing is banning the plant, and the other thing is what is the product actually? If it would be a pharmaceutical drug. Um, even if the, if you would just define the powder as a pharmaceutical drug, then there would be automatically a certain um, you know a certain uh, quality management, due diligence, uh, uh, certificates of analysis. Uh, um, you know, this whole things they they are kind of missing because particularly in 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 Europe, for example, they are, they are nothing. They are not a food. They are not a pharmaceutical. They, I mean, luckily they are also not a banned drug. I'm not sure. I think there are a few exception countries in Europe, but, mm -hmm. but there's something in between. So people, on the one hand, they can buy them and they don't get into trouble if they um, are, are caught with them, possessing them. But if I, for example, buy uh, ibuprofen from, from a pharmacy, I buy this ibuprofen for a purpose and the company guarantees within certain limits for that I can use it for this purpose. The purpose of a kratom officially is to have it. It's not for use, you know. It's it's yeah. not officially. And this is, I think, this is the, the trouble. I think once uh, someone asked me, um, uh, also an activist from from the Netherlands, he kind of he, he told me I got um, uh, severe pain. Um, I have some tilidines prescribed, and I have some uh, and I have some kratom. What should I use? And I actually said them, but just on a on the perspective that. If you have an adverse reaction, and you can have an adverse reaction with with kratom, you can have an adverse reaction with a drug. I mean, adverse reaction can happen with anything. You know, you could suddenly react allergic and uh, end up in hospital, and then you cannot work, and then you lose your job. You know, and in such cases, you know, you like to sue someone. <laughs> and the point is just um, no one takes on this responsibility for kratom, but for the pill they do. So if they did something bad in the pill. Or if they, for example, uh, forgot to put on a certain warning, counterindication, or if, you know, something went wrong in the production uh, process, um, they have to take responsibility. It's, you know, same with cosmetics, with food. It's built for this purpose, and therefore they have to take the responsibility. Of course, it's sometimes big 
Uh, it, it's sometimes difficult to, to sue a, a major company, but this stuff has been designed to take it. And therefore, the company takes responsibility for it. But Kratom, at least in Europe, it comes in from more or less dodgy vendors with no instructions for use. And some even label it uh, not for, inter uh, not for yeah. internal use. They do this to legally protect them from anything I could do with the substance to, to, to harm my, myself. And so basically, they don't take the responsibility. And this is why I actually uh, told this uh, activist to, if you want to be legally protected, take Tilidine. Um, so uh, I think he decided for Kratom anyway, but um, this is this is something we have to consider. And the same reason why, you know, no one would take responsibility for it. This is also the same reason why uh, certain quality control measures are not done. Yeah. And one typical thing to avoid microbiological growth, I know in the cannabis scene, people might hate me for this, but one typical thing you do with uh, spices and herbs is uh, gummy radiation. So basically you put something radioactive uh, very briefly next to it, and then it very shortly uh, gives some uh, radioactive uh, rays on the product and it uh, kills all, uh, all the germs in there. So... Um, it's actually quite a safe process. So the product afterwards is not radioactive. And if it's done properly, also the chemistry has not been changed. If it's done unproperly, the chemistry has been changed, but it's still not radioactive. The other alternative would be um, um, uh, heating it, but of course, particularly for spices and sensitive products, um, heating is not an option because, you know, uh, you might lose uh, the flavor. But this is something typically for such a product to get rid of microbes. And for heavy metals, you usually just try to do um, a good agricultural and uh, uh, and the, the process afterwards. You just try to do it, you know, good manufacturing process, GMP. Mm -hmm. um, you have to do it on soil, which is not uh, where there was no heavy machines before on and where, um, you know, which it's proper agricultural ground and not just a random space somewhere in the garden where you don't know what has been done there. Yeah. And then, and then you just check that you are below certain limits. And this is how you control heavy metals. But this type of responsibility, I don't think that many vendors are taking this currently on. And I apologize to all who currently do this. It's like anybody can get into the business and order from a random person on the internet from Indonesia and just put a label on it and resell it, which is a lot of what's going on. Um, and, and another uh, related thing um, to uh, you know how this would look in a regulated market, um, you said um, as part of your uh, testimony, it's understandable to regulate extracts and isolates for therapeutic purposes under local medical laws. However, it's not justifiable to ban the plant and its traditional use forms. So what would those regulations look like ideally? I mean, are you saying maybe like extracts can only be available through a pres prescription from a doctor? Yeah, that depends on the one hand on the, uh, on the indication. I mentioned that there are a lot of different parameters for extracts. I mean, of course, first of all, the, the source material makes uh, makes a difference. I mean, what genetics? Um, so for Kratom, I only know those those uh, three colors of the veins, but um, you know there are different variations. So this is the first standard, and wh what age they, do they have? Quick example for a plant where it makes a huge difference what part you take of the plant. Uh, the the castor bean or uh, um, ricinus or ricinus. I don't don't know how we call it in English, but uh, ricinus communis. If you do, if you do a, a water extract um, of the plant itself, 
you can uh, get a deadly poison, which is actually used for assassinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you take the, the seeds and do a, a, an oil extraction, you get a very safe uh, ph- pharmaceutical or cosmetic oil. It has some, uh, what's called, laxative properties. This is the c- c- cacao bean, like that makes cocoa? Castor bean oil. Castor. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So this is just, just to, to get an idea. So depending on what part of a plant you take, what type of extract you are doing, you can either get a deadly poison or you can get a, a quite safe cosmetic pharmaceutical ingredient. This is a very extreme example. I don't think that something like this is happening with Kratom. But this is the reason why um, even the growing the plant and uh, what parts you take and how you do the extract, this is defined in in, uh, in pharmacopoeias and in monographies and so on. I ju- just wanted to explain with an example why, why this is the case and uh, why not you just buy uh, whatever Kratom you get from your local farmers and then you put it all in the, in the same vessel and uh, put some alcohol in it and then you sell the product. You want that the product is always the same, and and you also apply specification to it. You also, you know, heavy metals are also a topic. Um, why you always want to have the same process, and then if, if you standardize a product like this, it's actually quite expensive. If you then do clinical uh, preclinical studies for safety, and then later clinical studies to show that it's working, for example, in people with Parkinson, where actually a company is also saying, hey, this is for Parkinson, and um, we also take a certain level of responsibility. This will be definitely a prescribable drug. But this does not mean that a very similar product could be, for example, sold for mild pain. And this could be an OTC, so an over-the-counter drug, where you don't need a prescription. So sometimes it's more the indication or uh, the attitude behind, uh, which is the difference between a prescription uh, or a non-prescription drug, or even a, um, a food supplement or whatever. You know, We also mm-hmm. treat a, a coffee and... A, uh, a lot of other things, which are drugs, you know, uh, we also treat them as food because we traditionally in the, in the whole world, we don't have psychoactive substance laws. Ideally, we would have a law where you deal with uh, coffee, beer, uh, cannabis, kratom, uh, opium, and so on. So um, whatever you use for more or less recreational purposes, we don't have those laws. We just have traditionally food laws, cosmetic laws, pharmaceutical laws, and, uh, oh, it's an evil drug, ban them laws. Yeah. So I'm not aware of any major country or, or union of countries which has um, a type of, of law there. And this is, why, this is why I'm just mentioning now prescription and OTC called maybe food supplement. But I mean, this already in, in this, you know, a lot of, a lot of things with uh, mild psychoactive effects are actually sold as food supplements. Yeah. Because there are no other laws for it. That's what the uh, American Kratom Association is trying to get Kratom recognized as a food. Because I think that's the the possibility. Alcohol and tobacco is clearly can be harmful, but they're both available to adults everywhere. And it, with Kratom, it's either you, it goes through this long process to become an approved drug. And they did that here with uh, CBD. It's uh, Apidiolux. But here in the States, if, if you have epilepsy and you want to take a Pidiolux, that'll cost about $35,000 a year. Whereas it's if you can get some pure CBD or with some THC, that might actually help. And it's not, and it's much cheaper and it's not as, uh, you don't have to go to a doctor to get it. And, you know, I mean, here it's just like there's a costs involved with healthcare that are beyond most people's, uh, ability to pay it just seems like some of these uh 
some of these things like Kratom should be regulated differently. So what do you think about maybe like other drugs like heroin and cocaine? Um, I mean, it, it's clear that banning them makes them more dangerous, cause, uh, especially with illicit fentanyl. How do you think they should be regulated? If you're against prohibition, you're for harm reduction, do you think um, drugs such as like heroin, cocaine should be legally regulated? Yeah, things like now, now let's say... Uh a kratom supplement and uh, a coffee or a coca tea they don't count what uh, in what i will say now i mean i think these can be actually treated as more or less uh, food supplements uh, mm -hmm. or maybe otc drugs um, i mean like also coffee pills um there for example in, in germany they're sold in um, also in pharmacies but everything which can let's say severely stimulate you or give you a buzz or psychedelic experiences i would classify those substances into three different regulatory categories and uh, the first one would be cannabis products and maybe a few things like uh, coca um, leaves to chew uh, cat leaves to chew kratom leaves to chew so maybe uh, maybe you know we have, then you have uh, cannabis social clubs and then you have some chewing social clubs where you can chew what you want i don't know but uh, <laughs> you know this is still something um i've maybe not for a supermarket but a dispensary where the only thing which is needed, you know, you need to be an adult and then you, and they should not make advertisement, but everyone can enter there and then they can either communist type of way, grow their own, you know, this kind of social club model, or they could um, commercial within those limits. So without advertising and, and, you know, public media and TV and so on. Yeah. I think this should be, this, I think it's not okay. I think it's also not okay for alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, for alcohol and tobacco, I, I see the same. Basically, with, with an age limit, with a certain level of education, uh, some so social responsibility. But basically, if you're 18, you can join there. You can buy the stuff for your own. You can also grow a certain amount for your own. But mainly, you can consume socially. So you can drink together beers. You can chew together kratom, or you can smoke together pot. This is the first category. Mm -hmm. Then let's jump to the third category, because I think this is also a quite quite easy one. If you have a substance use disorder, I think you should be eligible to get this compound, whatever it is, if it's heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine. By the way, yesterday there, um, uh, a paper was published for myself and a professor here in Frankfurt who's kind of famous for um, the, the Frankfurter way, so basically a harm reduction policy for particularly for heroin users. And we actually, we suggested a cocaine e-cigarette for crack users, oh, uh, huh. some not not recreation crack users, but people with a with a problem and who don't um, have issues with cessation, that they basically get uh, a cocaine e-cigarette and then they can, instead of uh, buying the single crack stones and then being high for a quarter hour, they can basically vape their cocaine, but yeah. because they don't get it from a from a from a dealer, they get it from a, a medical doctor. Therefore, they can also check for you know comorbidities, can also give them something to get uh, to down themselves afterwards, you know, prescribe some benzos or, or cannabis or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, because coming down is actually something very important if you're abusing stimulants. And also um, you can, those e-cigarettes, you can formulate and program in a way that you don't get lethal overdoses. Uh, this is just it's a concept uh, which we try to introduce with, with this publication. So I'm there. This is so very much. So the third category is very much a, a prescription model, but a very accepting. So basically, uh, physicians are not there for to withhold any drugs to you. 
they're just there for finding the, the best drugs for you. So they are, shouldn't, if you, for example, have a heroin use disorder, uh, it should not be the ambition of the physician to, to talk you down to, to uh, use methadone if you don't want to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have proper heroin, get it prescribed. I mean, we have this prescription model now in, uh, in Switzerland for, I think, 20 years. Um, also in Germany and um, some other countries, we prescribe heroin. And it's a success model. A third of the people start um, having a, a proper, are not homeless anymore. They uh, uh, even find a job. They can watch out for themselves. Their health improves. They, they, they stop stealing. They stop prostituting. I mean, everything which is associated with with buying black market drugs mm -hmm. because they, you know, they get it prescribed. Financially, this is a huge benefit because, I mean, a gram of heroin doesn't cost that much. And, you know, you can uh, make a lot of doses with a, a pure gram of heroin. And, um, but if you, for example, um, leave it to the people how they can get their drugs, you know, they will break in a jewelry, make uh, damage for 100,000 euros to just steal jewelry worth of 10,000 euros. But because it's, you know, stolen, they only get 1,000 euros for it. Yeah. And then they can buy 10 grams of heroin for it, which are only worth, I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks. This damage, which is done there, and this is society is paying this all day long. And this is what people don't get. It's cheaper for us if we give every person who has, uh, who has a heroin use disorder, if we give them heroin, it's cheaper for us and they are healthier. This is what people really don't get. And also, uh, I think also a lot of physicians do not get this. And this is why it's uh, uh, very important that I think particularly social scientists, they are very good in, in bringing this message across. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this message we have to really bring out there. Getting back to your question, this is the third category. So, and this is, let's say, more or less a prescription model. And this is for substances. I'm completely aware that not everyone is getting uh, hooked on those substances, but I'm still talking about substance with a quite high likelihood, not really fit for purpose for a recreational market. If people still decide to smoke crack, and they don't have an addiction. I'm also, of course, for full decriminalization, and I'm there for drug checking services. Maybe the occasional crack smoker who, is, who does not develop a, a use disorder who might then still like my proposal a little bit. Then the second category. So basically, what's in the middle of cannabis and heroin? First of all, we have to think about the substance with high use prevalence. So basically, amphetamines. So I would um, suggest rather the, the, the normal amphetamine than the methamphetamine. It acts quite similar, but the effects are not that long. And therefore, you have less issues with coming down and you um, get less into the scenario where you continue your use. So yeah. not sleeping over the weekend, but you still have to work and then you continue in your use. And this is very often how those very negative use patterns kind of start. So the normal amphetamine instead of the methamphetamine, MDMA, psychedelics, ketamine, some, some, maybe some opium, some shandu, old school uh, opium vaping, like in the 19th century. Of course, at, uh, with certain risks, and this is where you need an expert committee at some point um, who decides what uh, exact regulations there are. There might be some substances, particularly when we come, for example, to powder cocaine or uh, to um, um, opium, where... Um, there might be an additional educational session and you need to sign for something, maybe even to uh, sign an insurance or whatever. You know, there are a lot of different uh, things which are currently discussed. But the most important thing is that you get your substances in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So basically, similar as in the first model, you need to be adult uh, to go into the shop and the shop is not allowed to do advertisement. But 
while in the cannabis shop, you buy 10 grams and then you smoke it with your friends in a, in a big hookah or whatever. And mm -hmm. in, in this other model, we, you don't want to, oh yeah, here are your 100 ecstasies and, uh, and then everyone uh, eats some. No, the idea is still, okay, uh, you know how much you weigh? Hey, do, do you take any other drugs? Um, and then, uh, okay, here, I don't recommend you to take more than 60 milligrams overall, but here are pills with 180 milligrams that should be sufficient for the whole weekend. Don't dose more than this. Please uh, watch out for this and that. So for, for substances like ketamine, amphetamine, um, MDMA, you, LSD, you need to give them a little bit of uh, education yeah. or a little yeah. bit more than for cannabis. And also talk to them, hey, if you use this substance, please don't combine it with that substance. So this is why I distinguish between those categories uh, slightly. But this is basically my model. And I think every drug uh, in, in either one of those categories or even in multiple, depending on the concentration, maybe a very potent kratom extract would fit in the second category. And uh, um, so you still get it, but but there's still that there's someone who studied uh, either social scientist, uh, science and then did a seminar in pharmacology or vice versa, started pharmacy and then did a little course in sociology. They are basically giving it you one-on-one and giving you advice and only mm -hmm. giving you, let's say, a handful of doses and not your uh, your month supply like with cannabis or with kratom leaves. So for kratom leaves, I clearly see them in category one or even in a food grade. You could you can argue in both scenarios. Yeah. So free class model. That's uh, what what I kind of I'm suggesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it makes sense to me. That's uh, education about responsible use. I think is uh, lacking. And I just have one more question. You're outspoken against uh, the war on drugs. More and more scientists are becoming more outspoken, even about their own personal drug use. Like uh, we have uh, Dr. Carl Hart here in the United States. Um, I interviewed somebody from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Dr. Kirsten Smith, who admits that she used to use heroin. Is there a stigma to this in, in the sciences? Do you have any problems with backlash against your um, opinion or do you have any colleagues that uh, might be afraid have the same opinion that might be afraid to speak out definitely yeah um i think that uh, particularly Karl Hart's move there uh particularly you know with uh, also you know focusing on heroin uh was very very brave yeah i i i, I wouldn't be that brave to be honest um yeah I mean, it's, uh, you know, telling that I was a pothead when I was a teenager. Uh, this is even something I usually don't say. I mean, this might be the first podcast where I'm telling that. But, uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, people might, I mean, people, there's, there's so many people who know me. And uh, so I usually, in the debate, I try to be very neutral, um, um, particularly when it comes down to, to uh, numbers and stats and pharmacology, toxicology, and so on. And I usually avoid um, having this personal reference because if you say I'm, uh, I have used those substances and so on, yeah. then immediately yeah. the argument comes, oh, you only want to get it legalized so you can have better access. Yeah. Um, and if you say, I've never used those substances, then people might say, oh, then you don't know how dangerous and how addictive they are. So whatever you say, it's wrong. It's not, <laughs> it's not benefiting the case. It's not helping. Yeah. So this is why I usually avoid this. But does your so, stance in general on, on this issue come with a stigma? Um, oh, yeah. My, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I was on a, on a conference for the, the German pharmacologist and toxicologist. Yeah, I've been actually one who is, has my, shares my opinion. He actually told me, hey, by the way, 
those people don't like you they won't support your work uh they will not most likely will not include you in certain activities and uh um yeah that's actually happening um there were so um there were so many people who were not aware of what harm reduction means so they never heard of this terminology and i mean we use the english phrase usually they never heard of this they didn't understand the, the yeah. concept and so on then there was uh you know the the, the chair of this group of you know uh, thousands of scientists head of the board um i was asking hey i think we are, as toxicologists also should play a role in, in in drug policy and harm reduction what about a working group there and he kind of dropped me a very polite email but still kind of saying uh, that it's uh, how many other uh, ideas they currently uh, said uh nope so he would kind of uh, discourage me a little bit particularly in the natural sciences people are not very outspoken about the topic The social sciences are much better. Mm -hmm. And this is also why I collaborate a lot with them. But on the other hand, this has a lot of benefit because I'm for them also one of the only uh, natural scientists who um, is dealing with this topic. But but yeah, it's it's still um, a huge stigma. People think it's bad for their career. Even putting in this cocaine e-cigarette paper on LinkedIn, I saw how many people were kind of afraid and did not like it because I, I was able... I was able to see how many how many views it had, and there were so. I mean, I know also a lot of friends who are who are on LinkedIn and who probably have seen it, and um, they think more or less the same as I do about harm reduction and drug policy reform. Uh, maybe not that detailed, maybe a little bit less dramatic, but hardly anyone liked this. Um, I think I asked on Twitter, hey, does anyone want, wants, wants to like this one? I'm really disappointed <laughs> that no one is. Uh, and then and honestly, and some people even on Twitter replied to me, uh, if I would like that, I would lose my job. I mean, oh, I, I think this is pure exaggeration, but the, you still see it. people are kind of scared because they are immediately associated with, uh, with drug use. I mean, when I started publicly talking about this topic, I was aware that I will never have a big uh, management position in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, this was clear to me. The, the CEO um, of my company and uh, my super, uh, my, my line manager, they understand what I'm doing and they are, let's say, overall um, uh, on, on, on my side of things. And uh, in my current position, they don't mind if I talk about this. But mm -hmm. um, in a lot of other big industry positions, I, I would be burned. So I, I would... I would be out of discussion for any, uh, you know, climbing up the hierarchy or whatever. So, yeah, I, I for my career, I, this is very bad what I'm doing here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in that context, then thank you very much for <laughs> doing what you're doing. And, you know, especially uh, from our perspective, the Kratom uh, testimony was uh, very helpful to have scientists up there speaking out because they, a lot of people aren't really listened to even if they've had good experiences you know they, they they'll just be written off as an addict but i think it's really important for scientists to speak up so thank you very much you're probably one of the most sophisticated creative podcast there is I'm not sure if there's another one but 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 i mean uh, discussing papers with scientists and uh and also i i've, I've seen that you had even uh Even Ethan Nadelman um, in, in uh, your podcast. I mean, yeah, uh, I was happy to Thank you, Dr. Fabian Steinmetz. Follow him at Doc Steinmetz on Twitter. I have a link to his e cigarette cocaine study in the description. 
please like, subscribe, rate, and review the Kratom Science Podcast on your favorite platform. Follow us on Twitter at Kratom Science. And follow us on Facebook. The music is Rising, Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.